Coming up today, we explain how QAnon took over yoga, look at Google's plan to rewrite the rules of the web, and investigate how scammers are getting rich from the lockdown puppy boom. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Demperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Bernal. Hello. Amit Kawala. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Parler CEO John Matz was fired by the board, which is controlled by Republican Party donor Rebecca Mercer. The free speech social network has effectively been offline since Amazon Web Services gave it the boot in the wake of the Capitol Hill riots in January. It was also the week where Myanmar's new military rulers blocked access to Facebook days after they overthrew the democratic government in a coup. Facebook is used as the main source of online information for many people in Myanmar. This week, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos stepped down as chief executive of the e-commerce giant that he started in his garage nearly 30 years ago. Bezos, who has a fortune of almost $200 billion, will be replaced by Andy Jassy, who currently leads Amazon's cloud computing business. And finally, this was the week when a test of SpaceX's Starship rocket ended in a fiery explosion for the second time. The test of the reusable rocket technology, which is designed to take us to Mars, started off well, but the rocket failed to orient itself properly on descent and slammed into the ground. So, Natasha, there's something. There's a lot of things that are very interesting about Jeff Bezos uh, stepping aside as chief executive of, uh, of Amazon. But something that really came to mind for me is how hench is he going to get now he's got all of this spare time on his hand? Oh, I don't know, because supposedly he's going to still attend all these board meetings. So I imagine he'll have to sort of, you know, factor that in. He's got all his projects. Apparently he's going to dedicate more time to going to space. Well, not him personally, but his space projects. Maybe he'll think about his 10,000 year clock a little bit more. Um, so I, I think he's got enough projects to keep him going without becoming more hench. But knowing I him, I think he'll do something. Yeah. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has got to be absolutely furious in the battle of incredibly rich hench Silicon Valley, well, Seattle in Jeff Bezos' case, founders. I mean, Zuckerberg's still got so much on his plate and Bezos could just sack it all in and go full hench. Yeah, he's the only one left, isn't he, of the original sort of fang founders. So, yeah, maybe maybe he's thinking, is it time for me to have a... A long holiday, move away from Facebook and do something else. He's, he's occasion- Zuckerberg is occasionally photographed on, is it an electric surfboard? Oh gosh, yeah. Terrible scenes last year. <laughs> Unforgettable. <laughs> it's good it to like have he had a, a dollop hobby. of yoghurt on his face. Yeah. <laughs> he's staying safe from the sun. We shouldn't mock. Uh, what did you learn this week, Matt Burgess? Uh, this week I learned uh, with the t- turning of a new month that February, uh, if you look at the calendar, uh, and your week starts on a Monday, this month is sort of like a, a good rectangle. Uh, so <laughs> there are obviously 28 days in February this year. Uh, it's not a leap year. And split across uh, four, seven weeks, it's like Monday to Sunday in a rectangle. It looks very good if you like aesthetically open up your calendar app and see like all four rows of seven there. Perfect. You say you learned this this week. Did you, you looked at your calendar app and it was just gloriously rectangular, right? I did, but um, it also turns out that this only happens every uh, every few years. So it last happened in 2010, and the next time it'll happen is in 2027. 
does it happen roughly every seven years, Matt, or is it less than that? <laughs> it doesn't because uh, because of leap years obviously mess things up. Um, so um, it's something like every six years and then 11 years and then six years again or something like that. Brilliant. The amount of detail that you put into that seemingly throwaway fact is astounding. If anyone else um, has anything that they like about the shape of their calendar podcast at wired.co.uk rectangles um pentagons we'll, we'll take whatever you've got podcast at wired.co.uk natasha what did you learn this week so i learned that people often confuse ufos with a specific kind of suspicious looking cloud so if you spot an eerie saucer-shaped puff that seems to sort of hang suspended in the sky for a long period of time you might think that you're seeing a ufo disguised as a cloud or maybe just a straight up ufo but in fact you're probably seeing lenticular clouds which form when strong moist winds blow over rough terrain such as mountains or valleys so this wind condenses into disc-shaped clouds that develop perpendicular to the direction of airflow but they don't just form around mountains they can form anywhere at all which is why people get so excited when they see them and they think they've discovered aliens but the truth is out there so then they might be aliens i can't verify each cloud probably just That's clouds though uh amit <laughs> what did you uncover this week so um i have i read a really interesting article about um vaccine distribution um in the atlantic and um obviously today vaccines are being delivered around the world in refrigerated crates but when they were first invented obviously there was no electricity so refrigerated crates didn't really exist so when the um, vaccine for smallpox was discovered they had to uh, resort to quite an unusual technique to get it from europe to the americas where there was a, a smallpox epidemic going on so just a little um history refresher so smallpox um edward jenner discovered that people who had inve- been infected with cowpox were less susceptible to smallpox and he inoculated people by injecting them with pus from a, a cowpox patient so basically taking the pus and then scratching it into the arms of people that he wanted to inoculate and this helped prevent smallpox but if you tried to carry the past long distances the virus in it died and the inoculation didn't work um so to get the cowpox kind of vaccine to the new world uh, the spanish government created the royal philanthropic vaccine expedition which set off in 1803 and this was basically a ship full of orphans uh, who were infected with cowpox one after the other. So when it left Spain, one of the orphans had cowpox and then 10 days into the voyage, they would take the pus from his sores and then infect another orphan to then carry it for the next 10 days and so on. So they could stretch this uh, vaccine out across the Atlantic. Um, and yeah, so they could get it from Spain to the New World. And it sounds really horrible, but for the orphans, it was actually quite a good deal because they were kept really well fed and looked after on the ship because, you know, they wanted them to look healthy when they arrived so as not to, you know, scare the populace about the, the vaccine they were going to be getting. And they were given a kind of a new life in the New World and set up with schooling and things like that. So uh, there you go. Uh, refrigerated crates much easier than uh, a ship full of uh, orphans. So orphan children were put on a ship, fed and watered, and really well looked after, but scratched in the arm with some infected pus so that they could take the inoculation against smallpox to the new world. Exactly. Fantastic. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, my, my fact pales in comparison, even to Matt Burgess's rectangular February fact. Um, it, it comes in the form of a question, which is the worst kind of fact. Um, true or false? Toilets in the Southern Hemisphere drain in the opposite direction to toilets in the northern hemisphere anyone want to hazard a guess true or false yeah go on Amit 
So it's false because the effect you're referring to only applies to larger volumes of water, I think. I, I remember Googling this after watching that Simpsons episode. Yeah, where they, they put the ridiculous contraption onto the toilet to force yeah. the water to go the other way. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's called the Coriolis force. Um, and you need a very, very, very large body of water for um, for it to be affected by the Earth's rotation, which is, is which is effectively what would be happening in a toilet were it to be the size of an ocean. Um, so you'll be relieved to know that the force at which a toilet pushes water out isn't sufficient given the volume of water um, for uh, it's, it's too strong given the volume of water um, for it to be affected by the rotation of the earth so your toilet would still flow the same way good to know i'm relieved yeah I feel exactly very relieved yeah relieved is the right word um our story first story this week uh is about QAnon believers and yoga amit yeah, right. That's right. So last week we published a piece uh, piece by Cecile Guerin, who is a uh, researcher at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a think tank in London. Uh, so Cecile's day job is tracking extremist content online. Uh, but over the past year or so, she started noticing something strange. The, the same content that she was seeing at work was also popping up in her own personal Instagram feed. She's into yoga and, and things like that. And she found conspiracy theories, anti-vaccine content being shared by yoga teachers and wellness influencers you know, almost to the same level that it was being shared on, you know, online forums and QAnon pages. So what kind of stuff were they sharing? What kind of things are we talking about here? So it kind of, it's kind of morphed over the course of the pandemic. So in the early days, there were kind of posts, as you might expect, about, you know, juices and miracle cures and, and turmeric infusions could boost immunity and, and ward off the virus, which, you know, is, is obviously not true, but is, is kind of par for the course. I think there's a lot of those kind of rumours circulating and in, in, um, I mean, I know that like my uh, in my extended family group, there are definitely people who think that, you know, turmeric will, will cure coronavirus, which it obviously won't. Um, but then as the pandemic intensified, um, this disinformation became darker. So there was anti-vax content, there was COVID denialism, people questioning the existence of the disease at all. And then kind of these calls to question established truths and, you know, wilder conspiracy theories from the likes of QAnon, who's, I mean, the details of QAnon's conspiracy theory, you, you probably know, so I won't, won't repeat them. Um, so Guru Jagat, who was a yoga teacher with 67,000 Instagram followers, um, had a QAnon conspiracy theorist called Kerry Cassidy on, on her YouTube channel for an hour-long interview. And her posts about astrology and spirituality are kind of mixed with attacks on cancel culture. So it's kind of part the traditional content you might expect from kind of a spiritual wellness kind of guru, then kind of mixed in with sort of, yeah, attacks on cancel culture and, and conspiracy theories and anti-vaxxer stuff. Um, another influencer said in an interview that we should stop being poisoned through vaccines. Um, one influencer used QAnon-related hashtags such as the Great Awakening hashtag Great Awakening on her Instagram account, uh, and this was again interspersed with posts about motherhood and you know inspirational quotes over sunsets and things like that. So, yeah, there's kind of these these growing links between the yoga community and QAnon, um, which came to a head actually during the Capitol riots. Um, the QAnon shaman, who you might have seen on the news, he was the guy who was um, wandering around the Capitol building topless with um, horns and a weird fairy hat. He um, was revealed to be a yoga practitioner who was reportedly on an organic diet. So he's kind of the quintessential example of the overlap between these two quite seemingly quite different worlds. Yeah, and the, a couple of the people uh, and sort of uh, influencers and stuff that you mentioned there obviously got big audiences, which is quite troubling if they're spreading spreading this type of conspiracy theory information. But sort of how widespread is uh, is, is this happening in the sort of like yoga and wellness world? 
Yeah, so it's quite hard to tell. Like the people that I mentioned are, are people with kind of public accounts, you know, on, on, on open networks like YouTube, like Instagram. Um, but researchers have tried to kind of document the revival of what they call conspirituality, which is the intersection of, you know, spirituality and conspiracy theories. Uh, some people call it pastel QAnon, which is quite a nice term for it because it's, it's you know, quite cuddly and kind of nice on, on the surface, but actually there's some quite dark stuff lurking underneath it. Um, so as well as appearing in kind of public forums, it also appears in f- in spaces which are quite difficult for researchers to access. So, you know, private Facebook groups or uh, Instagram stories which disappear, so it can be quite hard to track. Um, the content's also quite difficult for networks to police. It uses coded language, so it talks about awakening and enlighten- enlightenment and, you know, seeking one's own truth, which is all kind of language that's used by conspiracy theorists or people pushing certain agendas. Um, and it's and, and again, it's kind of interspersed with content about veganism, about meditation, about acupuncture. Um, it, it bypasses content moderation efforts, and the people posting this content often have an air of kind of semi-plausible deniability. You know, if you take it at face value without knowing the context of what they're posting, it could appear to be innocent. But actually, when you realise that the words they're using are the same words that are being used by QAnon conspiracy theorists, then you realise that there's something more insidious going on. Um, the influence that themselves, it should be said deny kind of endorsing anti-vaxxers and endorsing QAnon conspiracies and, you know, talk about rhetoric that we'll all be familiar with, you know, freedom of thought, freedom of self-exploration. It still seems completely unbelievable that these two seemingly very separate worldviews collide in this way. When I think of QAnon, I think of angry men, specifically men, white men on the internet when I think of yoga, I think maybe sort of more middle class, more female, still white. But then I think something that people noticed with the Capitol Hill riots, it wasn't all a bunch of men of a certain age from the internet. It was people flying in on private jets. It was the the middle classes, sort of the chattering class. So is that what's happened here? We've all sort of presumed that these conspiracies conspiracy theories are the reserve of complete cranks but actually they're the sort of things that are believed by kind of the well-to-do in society and those people do yoga yeah exactly and i think what i mean what we've done or what facebook has done over the last 10-15 years is essentially created a machine for taking the fringe views of you know disaffected young men and essentially weaponizing them right and just spraying them all over the place giving them to everyone exposing everyone to them and that's one of the reasons that we're in the situation that we're in um and yeah it's not a coincidence that conspiracy theories have taken root in this um in these communities though um it's an industry that's been hit particularly hard by the pandemic um a, a survey showed that there was a 23% increase in uh, yoga studio closures in the US in 2020. So thousands of yoga teachers and, and practitioners have lost income, which means they've been driven towards other ways of generating traffic, other ways of generating cash. Um, so that might be one of the motivations for sharing QAnon content because it, it does very well, right? You know, people are interested in this stuff. So if you post kind of um, anti-vax content, you might end up getting more clicks people might end up you know taking your class you might make make more money so some entrepreneurs have become adept at kind of seizing these opportunities and, and almost preying on the vulnerabilities of their audience you know this is an 80 billion dollar global industry um and I, I think the other thing as well is although they seem although these worlds seem to be very different i think some of the underlying themes are quite similar so you know yoga is all about 
self-care and the individual pursuit of self-improvement um individuality and some people think that the nature of modern day yoga which is very focused around these trends makes it particularly susceptible to right-wing politics which also likes to talk about individuality and freedom of expression and, and, and all this kind of stuff um, and actually historically this is quite interesting i didn't know this until we we did the piece there's been quite historical links between yoga and new age pursuits and extremist politics so uh in nazi germany the they were particularly interested in astrology and alternative medicine um in, even in Britain, yoga has sometimes served as sort of inspiration for, for fascist ideology. Um, it um, embraces this sort of transgressive idea of, you know, rebelling, rebelling against the man and, you know, kind of that kind of thing, which which I think is also mirrored in QAnon and some of these other conspiracy theories. And then, yeah, on the, um, on the gender point, James, yeah, you, you're right. We like to think about, we tend to think of QAnon as being a largely male-driven thing, which was slightly disproven by the capital riots and... Actually, research has, research has shown that women are more likely to believe anti-vax discrimination. Um, so these kind of female-dominated yoga and wellness groups have acted as a bit of a, a kind of gateway to... In the same way that we've seen with men, like, you know, how the algorithm draws you down the rabbit hole, the same thing happens with these yoga groups. Um, and the final point I want to make on this is that um, there's been a kind of lack of investment in women's health, which has created a, a gap in the market for you know, natural or alternative responses. So a sort of... Um, I guess a cynicism about conventional medicine in certain groups, in certain demographics, which um, left, I guess, like a, a window of opportunity for some yoga influencers to kind of take advantage of by whipping up fear, by selling food supplements or individual fixes, you know, um, doling out kind of anti-vax information. So it's a combination of this gap in the market and people kind of cynically taking advantage of it. This is really sad because I think yoga instructors, just like any other person who's teaching you how to do something new, has some level of responsibility and power, right? A lot of the people who go to these lessons kind of believe in the lifestyle and they would like to emulate that lifestyle and, and would like to learn from the people that they're following on, on social media accounts as well because they think, you know, this is something I would like to do. This is something that has improved their lifestyle. Why wouldn't it help mine, right? So I, I suppose, how do you stop this from happening? How How do you stop people from from posting things like this that are hugely damaging to potentially vulnerable people who might be influenced into believing stuff that is just not real? Yeah, and I think I think that's the question. And I, th- I think one thing I want to stress is that obviously there's no indication that this is like, a, a, you know, this is obviously a minority of yoga influencers. I think the vast majority of, of them are, are kind of continuing about their normal business, right? So, it, but I think what what the problem is that, the, that these voices kind of get amplified because they're saying such outlandish stuff and they, they draw in new viewers. And I think what we've seen is the the rest of the community kind of pushing back on this. So um, there's a, a yoga influencer called Sean Korn who founded a uh, not-for-profit organisation called Off the Mat and Into the World, which is kind of aimed at translating the principles of yoga into politics, which again is something that I think yoga influencers tend to try and avoid or have tended to try and avoid in the past so she uses her social media platform to debunk some of the QAnon conspiracy theories that she sees coming up in in that space um and kind of addressing disinformation that won't be taken down by like the content moderation policies of the social networks themselves because they're not violative enough of the rules if you see what I mean so it's a combination of kind of other influencers kind of fighting back with the truth like we, i mean we've seen that in other areas as well of kind of fact checking and and that kind of thing and, and using influencers 
to fight influences almost, you know, kind of pushing back with the same tools that are being used against you. Um, so that's one area of it. And then I think the other thing is they talk about kind of, there's this vacuum that's been left after um, uh, the Biden inauguration, which I think many people that supported QAnon felt would be this kind of pivotal moment. Obviously it wasn't. Um, so they're kind of left in this vacuum where they can either go you know, further down the rabbit hole or they can kind of come back towards, um, you know, normality, I suppose. And it's kind of a pivotal moment and yoga influencers that we spoke to for the piece kind of say, well, you know, we can help them disengage from this by, by giving them the right content, which I think is going to be really important. There's been a lot of really good stuff published over the last several years along the lines of, yes, a lot of people do believe these things, but the way to approach them isn't to mock them and attack them. It's to reach out to them and try and talk to them about their concerns. I think after the Biden inauguration, the the real danger of this doomsday cult was these people felt so far down the rabbit hole that they couldn't find a way out. So in the yoga community, in any community, I think we've, we've, we've come to understand how widely held some of these beliefs are. And it's on all of us in society, right, to reach out a hand and try and establish a dialogue so that people that are lost to these conspiracy theories feel like they can say, I need help and to find a way back to quote unquote normal society. Otherwise this sort of thing just self-perpetuates, right? Yeah, exactly. And as you say, James, like this this is a story about yoga, but it's a story that we've seen repeated across so many other communities of um people people just kind of creating their own reality. And I think when that reality shatters, you can either try and piece it back together and then come up with some rationalization why for why you were right all along and you know why you know, Q is coming to save the world or whatever it might be, or you can kind of um, open your eyes, to, to, to borrow a phrase from that movement, you can you can open your eyes and like, you know, see the truth and kind of come back into the fold or whatever. And I think you're right. I think that hostility towards these people, although it may be warranted in some cases, probably isn't the most pragmatic approach to um, healing some of the divisions that have been created by or uh, facilitated by technology. And I wonder, given how widespread some of these beliefs are from, you know, the hardcore QAnon to vaccine hesitancy and, and other anti-vax beliefs, I wonder if any people listening to the podcast have members of their family. Amit, you mentioned some people in your extended family group who believe that turmeric is a cure for coronavirus. Um, if there are any people listening to the podcast who have come to realise that there are members of their family and friendship groups who hold these misguided beliefs that have been strengthened through the last 10 months of the pandemic with people's lives being more and more isolated and perhaps spending more and more time online. It'd be really interesting to hear um, about the QAnon believers in in all of your lives. Podcast at wired.co.uk. How are you confronting and dealing with this problem and how are you trying to reach out and help people who have maybe gotten a bit lost to these conspiracy theories and just need a bit of a helping hand to get back on track. Podcast at wired.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Our second story this week, Matt Burgess, um, is uh, a very complicated technical one, um, which uh, I keep I keep bringing on to the podcast. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, it's about Google's plans to rewrite the rules of the internet. Tell us some more. It is. So 
Over the next year, there's going to be a big change coming to the world's most popular and most used web browser, Google Chrome. Um, you won't see it happening in front of you. There won't be some like big change on your screen, but uh, the change will be happening sort of in the infrastructure behind the scenes. Um, so what is actually happening is Google Chrome is ditching third party cookies for good. Uh, and if all goes according to plan, then the update, which will happen in sometime in 2022 and maybe staggered over a couple of updates, uh, it will rewrite the rules of online advertising and make it harder to track the web activity of billions of people. So while it's a win for privacy, it's not that simple. Um, ultimately, the move may only tighten Google's grip on the advertising industry and web as a whole. Um, and critics and regulators uh, have been arguing that the move uh, risks putting smaller advertising firms out of business and could harm websites that rely on adverts to make money, such as news publishing websites. Um, and as I said, for most people, the change will be invisible. But behind the scenes, Google is planning to put Chrome in control of some of the advertising process and essentially using its web browser as one of the uh, main sort of ways that advertising it's served and to do this it is planning to use a browser-based machine learning to log people's browsing history and to lump people into groups alongside others with similar interests and show them adverts. Google spent quite a long time trying to reshape the web in its image and it, it's easy to forget in amongst all the other things that Google does that this is an advertising business with lots of bells and whistles around it. That's how Google makes the vast majority of its money by serving you ads. So any move to strengthen its grip on how that industry works is, is hugely, hugely significant for antitrust regulators and for ordinary internet users. So the changes sound big, but what's actually happening? So yeah, all around third-party cookies, and just to just to do a little recap on what third-party cookies are, and they've been around since the, the sort of like the 90s essentially, uh, but they are small snippets of code that send data back to people who aren't owners of the website when you're go to a new website or web page so if you went to a site, it would there would be somewhere a small piece of code that would sort of sense that you are there, sort of track that you are there, and send that uh, information to other people who don't own the website that you're on. Um, so essentially how these work in, and sort of used in the more real world is they are used to track people's online browsing. They can help to serve adverts. The data that is gathered on people's browsing history uh, is traded uh, across sort of data brokers. And third-party cookies really are the, are the main reason why uh, sort of if you go looking for a pair of shoes uh, on the internet one day and then sort of like a couple of weeks later or a few days later, you're seeing them in adverts all across uh, all of the other websites that you visit. Basically, Basically, that is the impact of third-party cookies and the data that's gathered by them is used to build user profiles which can include your interests, the things you buy and your sort of behaviours online and this data uh, economy and industry is a huge uh, is a, is a huge market like Google and Facebook are some of the biggest advertising players and make billions from advertising revenues but under that there are lots of different companies that sell adverts, that trade adverts, there are businesses that rely on adverts um, and 
essentially third-party cookies have been going out of fashion for a little while. Apple got rid of them uh, a few years ago, uh, Firefox limited them in 2019, and now Google is following that trend. So the death of third-party cookies is not something that is unexpected, but Google is basically saying that it wants to, while it's removing them from Chrome, it wants to replace them with something else. And to do this, it's come up with uh, a a set of protocols and ideas that form part of its privacy sandbox, which is essentially a load of different ways that Google can replace online adverts without obliterating the ad industry in total. Um, And aside from getting rid of third-party cookies within privacy sandbox, there are some things that deal with issues such as advertising fraud, uh, reducing the number of captures, those things where you have to tick to say you're not a robot, um, and other ways for companies to measure the performance of their ads. And while the plan of Google's has a lot of critics, um, there are many, many of those critics actually say that some of the privacy sandbox stuff is, is very good for the web overall and will be uh, a benefit to people's privacy in total on a basic user level i mean you mentioned seeing adverts again and again and again um i know it's happened to all of us where you've bought something and the advert for the thing you just bought follows you around the web i'm interested in the bit that you talk about machine learning what's the deal with that will it solve those kinds of issues to actually make it a better user experience at least even with the privacy stuff already factored in so the user experience is is quite a big question and one that there is not a full amount of answers on yet. So some of the people within the advertising industry that I was speaking to were saying that actually as a user, you probably won't notice that much difference. There may still be sort of like creepy ads that follow you around the web. Um, and this is because basically there are a lot of different types of advertising. So uh, I'll get to the machi- machine learning bit in a second, but some of while third party cookies are disappearing, um, the thing that replaced them, the machine learning, will not necessarily replace the types of adverts that you're seeing when a company already has your data or if you're logged into a website or if you've already been to that website to look at something. The way that Google is planning to use machine learning is for people that are seeing adverts maybe for the first time for potential customers uh, in the industry. These are for, um, as one person described it, as being for prospecting, essentially looking for new customers based on something that they might be interested in. Um, And so Google's plan uh, to replace the sort of the ways that third party cookies serve this process is using uh, machine learning and a system called uh, federated learning of cohorts, which for sure is called flock uh, and essentially um, is works in a way of grouping you with other people uh, like you based on your web history and other sort of signals that are sent through your browser and then you alongside um, the others uh, others who are deemed to be like you by machine learning will see the same type of adverts and these groups which are being called flocks like a flock of birds um, they essentially are Um, will be thousands of different people that have similar interests and then can be targeted by advertisers. Um, They will be able to put ads in front of people based on the group that you're in. And if Google's AI basically works out, if you like sneakers, for instance, you may be uh, chucked in a group with a similarly minded set of uh, trainer fans. So unlike third party cookies, the data will actually be processed in Chrome and the machine learning will will be uh, done on your device. So it's a good privacy win in terms of like the data isn't being, uh, data about your browsing isn't being sent across to various third parties that we don't know about. Um, But there are questions around how effective it will be. Um, Google claims that uh, its machine learning system is 95% as effective at targeting ads as third party cookies. But 
people within the industry have questioned whether this is something that will actually be um, effective uh, and will actually be able to replace them with the same sort of benefits for the advertising industry. It's a really clever move by Google, right? Because for a lot of people, the internet is Google. No one really uses other search engines. I mean, I know Bing exists in theory, but when was the last time that any of us binged something, right? So it, it's it's got Google, the search engine, most popular search engine in the world, and it's got Chrome, the web browser, the most popular web browser in the world. And it's using one to force the agenda of the other on the internet at large, right? So this is a huge deal it's sort of it goes without saying that the advertise the online advertising industry needs to move on from third-party cookies and everyone that you spoke to for this story was kind of in agreement on that the problem is that there's a risk here a substantial risk that google redesigns the web in its image to further bolster its market position and by holding all of this data albeit locally in the browser it's holding it within chrome within google's standards and all of a sudden, all the other players in the industry don't get a say, or do they? Because that's where regulators come in, right? Yeah, this is where things get slightly more complicated than the already existing uh, advertising industry and its multiple different layers and, and different standards and technical uh, systems. There is the case of what this means for competition. Um, so some of the people from the advertising industry that I spoke to said that um, while Google way what it's proposing may not be perfect and, and these things are still proposals at this stage, there's going to be some trials this year, but ultimately uh, there is a bit of a scope for change, although Google is ultimately... <laughs> in charge of what happens in Chrome, it is taking on advice and feedback from other people. Uh, so that's an important part of it. But um, a lot of the people in the advertising industry that I spoke to said that while Safari and Firefox have got rid of third-party cookies operating in this way, they've not necessarily done anything to replace the system. So from their perspective, at least Google is trying to replace it in some way. Um, so basically regulators are sort of circling around this issue already and in the US Google is facing a couple of antitrust lawsuits around various different parts of its business which Google opposes uh, but here in the UK on the 8th of January uh, the Competition and Markets Authority revealed that it was investigating Privacy Sandbox after it had uh, received some complaints uh, and is doing so alongside the Information Commissioner's Office which is in charge of GDPR and uh, that type of regulation um, and while the CMA, the competition body, hasn't outlined its actual, uh, some of the sort of issues that it's looking at around Privacy Sandbox, it did pr produce a very big, very dense uh, report last year, which I have had the fortune and misfortune of having to read. Um, and in this, it sort of like said, suggests some of the potential issues that could be faced in the sort of wider ecosystem. So it said that blocking third party cookers in Chrome may give google more power ultimately because it will uh chrome will act as a key bottleneck for advertising technology and it's likely that google's position at the center of the advertising ecosystem will remain so it's not going to lose a huge amount of its revenues by doing this um, and the cma report also states that online publishers such as news websites that rely on advertising to provide people with content for free they could see short-term revenue uh decreases of 70 up to 70 percent although uh we've seen 
seen some from some experiments uh websites that have ditched cookies have still been able to make a profit been using different advertising models so there's some of that still at play uh and google for its its part also says that it uses third-party cookies for adverts it serves on websites so google will google's own advertising products in some ways will be impacted just as other ad, ad technologies will be impacted impacted google says it thinks it can mitigate these but there's also uh separate from this and a sort of knock-on effect there is the impact of first-party data so websites as well as third-party cookies can have first-party cookies on which are cookies that are put there by the website that you're visiting to and they collect your data and essentially if you get rid of third-party cookies websites that collect information about their users from first-party cookies or if they're logged in can essentially gather more insights about their users so if you're going to uh, a news website a website will be able to understand what you're reading if you're logged in it will know who you are your email address various other things about you so it can target more adverts specifically to that person who may be interested and when it comes to first party data collection there are two big companies that are uh, the biggest collectors of data around this which are Google and Facebook themselves. So people within the advertising industry sort of argue that the death of third party cookies, while good for privacy, could push people to spending more money on platforms where publishers and advertisers know more about their users. So more money on Facebook, more money on YouTube, more money on TikTok, advertising all of those platforms. So yeah, it's it's a case of there's a lot still to unravel, but it could be good for individual privacy in some ways, but it could be bad for the web overall. What's wonderful about this story for Google is it's so, not that you explained it boringly, but in, 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 in theory, it's so boring and so dense and so technical that there's a risk that it's able to kind of sneak this stuff out without anyone paying too much attention. And when we, when we were talking about you doing some, um, some work investigating what Google was up to here, there's, there's not a great deal of reporting out there on this and this story really really took off on why this week and generated an awful lot of interest by people that had absolutely no clue that google was planning to to do this but it's it's not it's not overstating it to say that this is a huge deal and everyone should be paying attention to it no it is very important for the health of the web in general and uh people that i was speaking to saying that this sort of move could push more power to some of the biggest data uh led companies such as facebook and google already and how they handle our data and basically the processing of it and it's um and it will also have big impacts for publishers and websites that do rely on uh, advertising revenues for um uh, for, for surviving and the industry the advertising technology industry as well so there's a lot of different parts at stake but also there's a lot of nuance and a lot of complexity which makes these types of things very difficult to report on and to understand but i think that if you've got regulators already looking at this google's open to making some changes um hopefully we can get to a solution that um serves the most amount of people in the best way um, a, but more to come yeah i was going to say i'm afraid to say matt that it's a story that we're going to be following very closely uh, throughout this year and into 2022 as Google uh, gets to a position where it's ready to roll this sort of stuff out. It's a, a genuinely, it's a really, really interesting and important story. Um, we'll include a link to it in the show notes. And if you've got any thoughts on it, if you work in the ad tech industry or a related business that might be affected by these changes that Google's proposing, let us know, podcast at wired.co.uk. What other considerations need to be taken into account to make sure that this isn't just a win for Google? 
Now, never let it be said that we don't give you variety in this podcast. So we uh, we started off with a story about QAnon and yoga. Then we talked about the ad tech industry. Natasha, now we're going to talk about sick dogs. Oh, yeah. Everybody loves puppies. And I know a couple of people in the Wire team are getting puppies. And the demand for pandemic puppies has soared as basically families up and down the country look to buy a dog during lockdown. And as registered breeders ran out of dogs to sell, unscrupulous sellers and scammers have turned to sites like Gumtree and Facebook Marketplace to sell puppies with very dubious origins to desperate buyers. So this week, um, our reporter Alex Lee spoke to a man called Richard Ackers. And I wanted tell you the story of 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 Richard's dog Reggie because it's it's genuinely quite sad so he he bought uh, Reggie who's a Labrador retriever puppy home to his family in Wigan just before Christmas he was really happy and playful puppy but on the day that he came home he quickly fell ill first he had a really bad bout of diarrhea then the next morning he became lethargic and started vomiting he was diagnosed by the vet with parvovirus which is an infectious gastrointestinal illness that is rife in puppy farms where dogs are churned out and bred in really poor conditions. So despite their best efforts, Reggie died three days later. So Richard bought Reggie for £1,800 from the UK's largest pet classifieds website, Pets for Homes, where you can find everything from dogs, cats, to snakes, tropical fish and ferrets. Around 2,500 pets find new homes every day on this website. Um, I'm not really an animal person, so I have absolutely no frame of reference for this, but is £1,800 a lot of money for a dog? Yeah, so um, actually not not these days. So puppy selling has become a very, very lucrative business. So pet, figures from Pets for Homes have shown that the average price grew during the pandemic uh, to around £1,883, which is more or less what they paid for Reggie, more than double the same period in 2019 when the average cost of a puppy was around £888. And Pets for Homes supplies a big chunk of that demand. And, and this story very much focus on, focuses on that website. So uh, the, the, the website Pets for Homes uh, obviously operates um, a massive chunk of, of this sort of pandemic boom on puppies but what it doesn't do is guarantee that the people that are selling those puppies on its platform are legitimate and Reggie's story is a case in point so Richard says that the person who posted the Pets for Homes advert selling Reggie's litter had produced a vaccination card and said all of the puppies had been treated for fleas and for worms that wasn't the case when his microchip was scanned it didn't correspond to the address that he had bought Reggie from but from an address somewhere completely different Uh, so when Richard rang the seller to tell him that Reggie was sick he was told that such a diagnosis was completely impossible then the seller blocked his number so Richard has been going to the seller's house several times to try to get answers to what's happened but the place has been completely cleared out when he went there he says neighbours told him that the people staying in the house kept changing now the story of puppy farms and dodgy dog sellers is nothing new the the new bit here and the, the story of of little Reggie is is very very sad. The, the difference here is it's the market, right? The market has absolutely exploded. We've gone from a situation where the average dog was being sold for about eight hundred pounds online to eighteen hundred pounds. So, what's what can be? You know, we're in an extraordinary situation where lots and lots of people want dogs. You've got a platform where there's not really a lot of checks and measures in place. So when we put all of this to Pets for Homes, what was their position on on this? What had gone wrong in their eyes? 
Yeah, so this is this is an interesting situation because uh, as, as journalists, obviously you approach um, companies a lot and you ask them, you know, what's what's happened here and what you're going to do about it. And but this this tale was particularly gnarly, actually, because the response for pets from homes was not the expected one. So um, a, a bit more context, which is required here, because Reggie's story continues. It's it's a horrible tale. Um, Richard and his partner had set up a Facebook page titled Justice for Reggie to try to raise awareness about what happened to them. They basically were arguing that you know there were no checks that. They this person turned out to be a fake, that, that that they got a puppy that was very ill and that had died and that that shouldn't have happened. Um, the page contains pictures of Reggie, um, pictures of puppies with angels' wings, stories of um, puppy farming and dog thefts and shares of Facebook posts that feature similar puppies' stories. Now, you might think at this point that Pets for Homes would apologise for the family's bad experience or say that they were planning to review the way their site is run. Instead, um, in response to, to our queries on this story, the site told us it's in discussions with lawyers about the content of Reggie's Justice Facebook page, claiming that it features not only demonstrably false statements, but sock puppet accounts which appear to be associated with it are driving a campaign of harassment. Now, Pets for Homes did not provide evidence to back up these claims. The spokesperson we spoke to says that the site cannot comment on its legal discussions or on live investigations. Now, now the interesting thing about this, aside from the sock puppet account and the potential harassment and this, this uh, Facebook page is that the the spokesperson that we spoke to also criticised Reggie's owners for disregarding the guidelines below the pet adverts that are on the website, which recommends that basically people walk away if a seller fails to supply appropriate documentation or does not provide contact details for the vets who perform the health check. Now, if you remember, I said before that um, the person who sold Reggie to Richard had given him a certificate that he claimed was from the vet showing that he had been vaccinated. Um, Obviously, it's very difficult uh, for a lot of people who are going on this website and other websites to make a really split-second decision if they really want a puppy and there's a huge amount of demand to not say yes to something straight away um, and to walk away. Now, uh, Pets Pets for Homes also claimed that Reggie was intended as a Christmas present, which it claims is deeply unethical. Now, Reggie's owners deny that he was bought as a gift. Now, th- this is an interesting scenario because um, it appears that the onus from Pets for Homes is definitely placed on the people that are buying these puppies rather than on sort of policing its own site. We'll come to, to what it does um, later on, um, on, on the measures it takes to stop people from putting out false adverts. But puppy owners like Reggie, uh, Reggie's owners, say that the lack of regulation on these classified sites like Pets for Homes mean that unscrupulous sellers have been able to flourish throughout this pandemic. So what exactly are the rules around third party sales of puppies and sort of what else what else can be done in this situation? So the rules are quite straightforward, actually, since about April 2020, the third party sale of puppies has been banned in England and only breeders and rescue centres are allowed to sell them to buyers directly. By law, puppy breeders need a licence if they breed more than three litters a year. And this licence comes with a list of conditions that the breeder has to meet, such as animal welfare and a responsible breeding environment. This means that you can't, you know, have the, the churn of a lot of puppy farms where you have puppies basically being, you know, produced all the time in, in very bad environments. That, however, hasn't really stopped people from doing things illegally. So the Kennel Club told us that these rules have pushed large commercial breeders underground. So they've become 
puppy farms and they sell to certain third party sellers so the person who sells the dog on on these websites isn't necessarily the person who raised it and they can often sell them from what looks like apparently a really good home and good conditions um and they'll they'll show other dogs uh, we we've, we've seen adverts with with dogs that look like they are called like the the mother of the puppy litter but in fact they might not be it's very hard to to prove this um this sort of using people as a front to offload loads of puppies that have been mass produced basically in, in bad conditions so with with dogs in such high demand uh, some criminals have even more sinisterly uh, resorted to dog napping so that they can make a lucrative buck so there were about 465 dog thefts reported to the canine charity dog lost in 2020 this is up from 172 dogs in 2019 you might have noticed if you're walking down the street a lot more missing dog adverts um, that are posted on lampposts there's a there's a reason for that people snatching dogs some people have said that they don't want to put pictures of their puppies online because they're afraid they'll become targets um, last November a Lincolnshire based Margaret Whitehead who we spoke to for this piece had four Welsh terriers who are on the vulnerable breed list stolen from her secure kennel block right next to her house she says the hardest part of everything is not knowing whether they're alive because often these these um, dog nappers if they find they can't offload the dogs quickly enough um, dispose of them now now we go on to the bit about what pets for homes homes is doing about all of this obviously it's a major player in, in the puppy selling game it is in charge of basically doing some sort of vetting before people put adverts on the site so what, what they've told us is that it blocks 40,000 suspicious adverts during the first lockdown and that it reviews every single listing on its site it claims that around 40% of all adverts are blocked during the pre-publication approval process so that gives you an idea as just, just how many people are trying to get onto the site and sell puppies that even the first wave of them are blocked before they even reach the advert stage now, a Pets for Home spokesperson claims that it has a number of automatic fraud detection tools in place with users not being able to post an advert online without verifying their phone number via a one-time PIN code. So that will supposedly deter anyone who's trying to post loads, loads of adverts at the same time um, that are based on like fake things and trying to get your, your money. Um, they've, they've said that if someone's blocked that they can't reinstate their account and that it's not possible to use the same number, IP or postcode again So because their systems are able to detect duplicate accounts. But fraudsters can still get around some of these measures. So Chris Bridgewater, who's a kennel club assured Cocker Spaniel breeder, told us that sellers simply switch SIM cards to evade, buy to evade buyers and security measures on listing sites. And at the height of the first lockdown, Bridgewater was receiving 50 calls a day from people interested in purchasing a puppy. So this is the kind of level of interest people had. Everyone wanted a puppy. They found themselves at home. They thought we've got a lot more time. Why not? Um, and, and the problem is, is that no one's actually watching the people, legitimate or not, that are putting these puppies on the market. Market. She was telling us that although puppies are meant to be microchipped by their breeder, no one actually checks to see if anyone does this. So it's very easy for unscrupulous people to just not microchip or, you know, put someone um, else in charge of microchipping so it looks like the puppies come from a different origin. Um, charities and organisations are calling on something to be done about this, to stop puppy fraud. The legal minimum age for puppies to be imported into the UK is 15 weeks, but Dogs Trust says that puppies as young as eight weeks are smuggled into the country at an age when they should still be with their mothers. They want to see anybody producing more than one litter a year to be licensed, and anybody selling more, less than one litter a year should be re registered so that they've got traceability, which would certainly help with online advertising. In the meantime, though, until these, these regulations are put in place, people are getting away with this illegal activity where people are being scammed and are paying a hugely high price financially and emotionally during this pandemic.
Now, um, the story didn't come from nowhere. As you mentioned right at the top, there's a couple of members of the Wired team who are thinking about or have already got puppies and have maybe uh, brushed up against some of this uh, dodgy activity on online marketplaces a bit more, a, a bit closer than they might have liked. So what should people do if they want to buy a puppy now? Let's not, um, let's not pretend that this problem's going to go away, right? There's still huge demand for this. And a lot of people aren't going to be aware that these unscrupulous people are operating on these platforms until it's too late. So what can people do to avoid getting caught up in illegal activity? Yeah, so you might notice on any site that is offering puppies, uh, is they either sold out in minutes or you've got a long waiting list. Um, often you're having you're having to make a really split second decision. So that's that's what the people that that we've spoken to have told us that you either say yes, pay the money, um, hope for the best, hope that's a legitimate seller. Or, or you, you know, you might lose the chance of having your your dream puppy. But rushing into buying a dog is never a good idea. So Dogs Trust has given some really good advice, which I think applies not just to the wide UK team members who are thinking about getting puppies, but also to the general public, that, that we should be vigilant, basically, when we're buying a puppy online so that we don't get caught out by things that are really obviously scams and to do our homework. So Dogs Trust has said, just go and see the puppy interacting with its mum go and see it more than once and you know check out the seller um that there are there are certain aspects you know if, if you see this p- person selling more than one litter if you see their name pop up in different reviews do your homework make sure they're legitimate before you you buy you buy a dog because um, it's a really important purchase and you don't want to see your dream dog get ill um same as reggie and and perhaps die so yeah better safe than sorry in this scenario and if you don't like the look of it, walk away. Never let it be said that um, we don't deliver a valuable public service to our podcast subscribers and also, in this instance, to our colleagues. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, it, there's, there's thousands of you listening. Some of you must have uh, taken the plunge and got a pandemic puppy. Um, did it feel... Uh, did it feel legit? Did you hit up against any problems with dodgy owners? What was your experience um, of picking up a pandemic puppy? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Do get in touch. And as always, we'll include a link to the story in the show notes. There's an awful lot of fascinating and slightly depressing detail, which I'd encourage you to go and seek out. Okay, time for a couple of emails before we're finished this week. Um, To start with, we got an email from Anna, who's from Edinburgh. She writes in about the Spotify story from a few weeks back with some suggestions as to how people can mix up the the music that streaming services recommend to them. So this was Vicky a few weeks ago talking about how to get out of your Spotify feedback loop. Anna writes that her brother is a drummer and is always on the lookout for new music. She doesn't have the time, so she tends to head to his Spotify profile and listen to his playlists. She says she does the same with other people's profiles, friends and other artists, as well as shops and companies. She adds that Spotify could really do a little bit more to up the social media features on its platform to make it easier to find people with similar interests. It's a really, really good point. We're sort of depending on the algorithm to do this sort of stuff when there's loads of like-minded people. So maybe it would make more sense for these platforms to recommend similar people and we can go and seek out within their interests things that we like the look of. Thanks very much for your email, Anna. Uh, Amit, who else has been emailing this week? Yeah, we we got an email from Barbara who wrote in about the story that we did, I think, last week on Corporate Memphis. Uh, If you missed this, uh, Corporate Memphis is the weird, flat, colourful illustration style that seems like it's taken over every single startup advert these days. Um, Barbara says, thank you for the story. She didn't know the name of the design, but she's been getting increasingly annoyed by it over the last year or so. 
primarily primarily when it's used by magazines uh trying to be cool uh because it's so infantilizing she says she says uh she's incredibly turned off by distortions in size and making people or things look rubbery now i totally agree with her although i suspect that Wired probably has been guilty of using this illustration style at some time in the past in our print magazine in which you can subscribe to for a very very low price so please do wired.co.uk forward slash subscribe if you want to take us up on that offer and uh, hold us to account if we're using too much corporate Memphis. Uh, One final email this week, Matt Burgess. Yes, uh, Josh sent in uh, an email saying congratulations on the 500 episodes and saying that they had been listening for a couple of years now and enjoyed the show. Uh, and they wrote in about uh, Parla, which you talked about, James, uh, actually a few weeks ago, uh, and said that I found the lack of data security pretty shocking. I was wondering if this uh, flimsy coding by Parla is something that could be in G- breach of GDPR in brackets. I imagine Matt will love this question. I do. Uh, and yeah, Josh basically asked about, yeah, the sort of like the legal uh, process behind Parler and some of the data that was leaked. Um, I, I think it's very unlikely that there could be any data breaches. But if this was any other company, I think, James, you might have alluded to this either in the story you wrote or the podcast uh, where we talked about it. Uh, if this was any other company that was more of a uh, sort of well-established business, then this would have been seen as a huge data breach in terms of uh, leaking people's information and it being available to anybody. And it would have been seen as a huge security issue overall. Um, I think it's very unlikely that there will be any sort of like GDPR ramifications or stuff like that, but there definitely could have been the, that there could be the potential, but I don't think that any people will bring any cases. If it was another company, I think it would be very different. Um, and yeah, it's it's it was pretty bad from a sort of information security data protection uh, perspective. It's an absolute mess, but other platforms of Parler's scale don't tend to be that badly coded. Parler was uh, sort of a victim of its own success. Um, it didn't have many employees and uh, its data privacy um, was completely not fit for purpose. Thank you very much for your emails, Josh, Barbara and Anna. Um, podcast.wire.co.uk. We do love hearing, hearing from you, so please do get in touch. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening as always and we'll be back again same time next week take care goodbye bye bye goodbye